If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to, you can open them up to Matthew chapter 27. Uh, we are going to be in mostly Psalms 22 and Psalms 31, uh, but we are going to start off in Matthew 27. Um, uh, the scripture will be on the screen to the left and right of me as well. So you're more than welcome just to uh, uh, look at that, use your phone, Kindle, uh, whatever you have. Uh, this morning, as we partake in the Lord's Supper and continue in our series in the Psalms, uh, we have covered a variety of different genres of Psalms, including the Lament Psalms, uh, which Jesus specifically uses, as we're going to study this morning, at his crucifixion. As we participate in one of the very few sacraments that Jesus left for the church, both baptism and the Lord's Supper, we want to see why he quoted these specific lament psalms, uh, these verses, in his time of greatest grief and sorrow. But we also want to see how it is applicable to us and should be received by us as the church as those who are following him, living for him, now benefiting from what he has given us in the cross with salvation. And in order to do so, we need to understand, again, the greater context of what happened in his crucifixion, which we can find and we will read in Matthew chapter 27, starting off with verse 32. Many of you guys are familiar with this. and Let's reread this, see in the context of where he says these psalms and why. It's Matthew 27. Starting off with verse 32, God's word says this. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, talking about Jesus. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him a wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots, which of course was in the Psalms as a prophecy being foretold and fulfilled here. Verse 36, then they sat down and kept a watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, mocking him in that, not recognizing its truth. Verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on their right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, here is the verse where he, Jesus is going to quote one of the Psalms. Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. 
And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus is recorded in the Gospels saying seven different things on the cross. Two of those seven phrases was quoting the Psalms and then two specific verses in the Psalms that we're going to see what, again, they meant in its context, what God intends for us with them and why Jesus used them at the greatest moment in history. Before we study these in the Psalms that they are actually in, I want to remind you a quote that we had shared a few weeks back from Donald Whitney that said, there is a psalm for every sigh of the heart. With that in mind, here with what we will read, with what Jesus quoted coming from the psalms, are actual sighs of his heart. Specifically this one in verse 46 of Matthew 27, as he experienced the greatest pain for a greater purpose. They are emotions portrayed in the Psalms that both Jesus experienced, but then also prophetically fulfills. There are truths in them that we both can personally model, but also leave us in awe and worship of our Savior experiencing it himself. First, what we see and what we just got done reading in verse 46, where Jesus cries out, what we find in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in him, not only saying that, but feeling that, the sigh of his heart, the emotions coming out, we see how, number one, Jesus, the Son of God, the fulfilled Messiah that was prophesied about, the only one that can take the world's sin away. Jesus felt forsaken by God so that we can be forgiven by God. Again, what Jesus cries out in Matthew 27, 46, it comes from a lament psalm, Psalm 22. If you see it on the screen, feel free to go there if you have your Bibles before you. And we read in Psalm 22.1, again, King David saying this, crying this out, and own his own sigh of his heart. Psalm 22.1 reads this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God. I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. With this in mind, that Jesus felt this, like David did, and is saying here with some additional verses, and they felt this way and said this, because of sin. With Jesus, not his sin, of course, but ours upon him. And David express, is expressing this very same thing in the first place. His own experience of feeling 
abandoned by God. Here we see here the most intense suffering that God's servant can know. Not just that enemies surround him as often happened with David. And that his body is in dreadful pain as he talks about in Psalm 22 verses 14 through 16. But that he feels that God does not hear him nor care about his suffering. And this is not just the experience of David. It is the experience of a lot of God's people in the face of terrible trouble. We often wonder how our loving Heavenly Father can just stand by when we are in such distress, feeling the effects of sin, both done against us or within us. And let me remind you, church, let me remind you, sin leaves us forsaken, feeling abandoned, deserted, empathy. It is sin after all, as we all know, that separates us from a holy God that created us for him in the first place, that loves us, and it's sin that separates us. In fact, in my opinion, it is one of the most devastating consequences from sin. And we all know, we've all maybe experienced and felt plenty of horrible consequences of sin. But at the top of that list is the truth that we who were originally created in the image of a God for a relationship with God and to worship God is born with an unnatural void of such a sought-after relationship with God. That there is a great hurt, a great pain, in that separation of feeling forsaken and abandoned because of sin. And I am not sure, again, if there is a greater hurt in this world. I mean, that is true when it comes to the God that saved us, wants to save us. But that is true in the physical relationships you have on this earth. And years of ministry, and even before ministry, just experiencing it in my upbringing. Kids who are abandoned by parents. Spouses who desert their families. Close, close friends and community and community looking and feeling and actually being their family when they don't have family. And all of a sudden, gone. It's one of the greatest hurts and pains I've seen people experience in ministry. It's why it's often used in stories and movies and, and literature to really stir up, to get the story going. Because people have felt this and then they connect with this and then they are in tune and attentive of it. You know, I can't but help to think in this current day and age, I know there's a lot of parents and we've talked about this in our parenting teenage kind of book study this summer. There's a lot of parents, um, you know, a little concerned and, and uh, weary and, and freaking out a bit over some of the direction that some Disney movies today are coming out. And I kind of can't but help to think, 
you didn't care about the abandonment issues in the early Disney classics. I mean, like Bambi, Lion King, I think those things like really messed our kids up, okay? Like, we didn't care about those things. I'm just kidding. But what a difference it is when someone who's maybe never experienced it or even at times has experienced love, a relationship, and then tragically lost it, remembering it, yearning for it, doing everything you can to attain that relationship again, to no avail, it hurts. And listen, church, it is what Jesus experienced for the one and only time in eternity when he took on our sin, our sin, that causes such separation between us and a holy God, but then he felt and received himself. And I can't but help to ask, like, what can prepare him for that? To the point where Jesus on the cross brought out this psalm to say it to what he has always, always known, his forever father that has been in relationship within the Trinity forever, that he would feel this consequence from sin himself to the depths and point that he would cry out the sigh of his heart that he remembered when memorizing the scriptures himself. Oh God, oh God, like David cried out, why have you forsaken me? Where he felt and said this knowing that taking our sin upon himself on that cross in propitiation for us was what it would take for us to receive both forgiveness and to be reconciled with our Heavenly Father. That he would know for him to feel forsaken by God, although it's not true, but feeling what we receive because of our sin so that we can ultimately be forgiven by God. That he knew that this is what it took to provide the good news of salvation as a gracious gift for us to finally be forgiven, reconciled, and restored back to the God that we need and felt that same forsakenness with because of that sin that he was now bearing, but that he will wash it away from us so that, again, we can receive God, our Heavenly Father, back our forever loving, protecting, providing, faithful Father to be with us and to care for us and to promise to never, ever leave us. And he did this. So not only we can receive that forgiveness and new life in him, but also, church, listen, to know that it's okay and it's going to happen at times that we're still going to feel this way. That we're going to still feel the weight of sins 
like Jesus did. Even if we've been forgiven and freed from it, justified from when we did, hearing the gospel that Jesus Christ, out of his great love for us, took that sin, was forsaken, felt forsaken by God because of it. But knowing it's what's good, it's going to take to pay that penalty that we deserve. But then rising from the dead, defeating sin, Satan, and death, conquering it. And then offering it as a gracious gift to us, saying, if you believe this, if you turn, repent of your sin, and you have saving faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that the posture of your heart goes from either blind to sin or prideful in your sin to, I know this is sin and I know what it's doing, and I know the only way it can be forgiven and freed and to receive new life and to have eternity. Is that posture changing? I turn, I repent, and I have saving faith in you and I need you. And then when you receive that, you know you have a forever Father with you, the Holy Spirit that gives you new life, that sanctifies you, helps you become more holy, but still making mistakes, still sinning, and still being sinned against. And listen, church, when those moments and times happen, you can know, you can have comfort. It is unlike before, where there's no hope, but you still, and it will be normal to feel that way at times. Maybe even suffering from it, questioning and even communicating this to our Lord. Again, that's the point of the lament psalms. In fact, John Calvin in his commentary on this verse concluded that a sense of being forsaken by God is far from being unique to Christ or even rare for the believer. But instead, it can be a regular and frequent struggle for believers. He wrote this. There is not one of the godly who does not daily experience in himself the same thing. According to the judgment of the flesh, he thinks he is cast off and forsaken by God. While yet, and this is key here, while yet he apprehends by faith the grace of God, which is hidden from the eye of sense and reason. Because church, you're going to be sinned against and you're still going to sin. And you're going to feel and question and wonder at times. Although I know, I know I should trust that you would never, forever, you would never ever leave me. I feel that way right now. And as Calvin says, we should also have that faith and trust that he has not forsaken us. If we have received the forgiveness of God, which actually leads us to verses 3 through 5 of this psalm that Jesus quoted. And what I do believe with all my heart, Jesus knew was true for him and us when receiving Christ as Savior and Lord of our lives. That this was true for him, that although he said the very first part, God of oh God, why have you forsaken me? Knew in his heart, he knew the plan. This is Jesus. He knows the future. He knew and he trusted this is what it takes, but I am just crying out of my heart what I'm feeling right now. But at heart, he knew the rest of this psalm that David said as well. And look at what David says. Verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame.
just like Jesus, just like David, we all should know, even in the times where we feel abandoned, that God is holy, that he is worthy of our praises, even when just feeling forsaken. Because at heart, we know if we have Christ or in Christ, it is not true. And as David says in this psalm, and what we see from church fathers before us, where they truly trusted in God, and he delivered them, and that they cried out to him, and he rescued. And God, we trust and know in such faith that it will not put us to shame. It's just like verses 3 through 5 was true for the trust of David. It is true for us in Christ. And in this particular moment, the cross, the trust of Jesus. We actually see this even more in the next psalm that Jesus quoted on the cross. A truth that we see in Psalm 31. This was most likely, at least what we have recorded in the Gospels, Jesus' final words. His final words before he died. We ended on verse 49 of Matthew 27, but look what Matthew 27:50 says. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now, when Matthew wrote this, he didn't say what Jesus had said, but that was actually recorded in two other Gospels. We're going to read one, Luke 23, 46. That loud voice, that cry out that Matthew says in verse 50, recorded in Luke 23, 46, was this. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now know this before we unpack it in the psalm that it's coming from and that Jesus is quoting. His spirit here does not mean the Holy Spirit, but instead Jesus' own human spirit. And what he is saying and voluntarily releasing from his body, knowing it will return to the presence of of his heavenly father, that his spirit would remain in heaven with the father until it returned to his body at his resurrection on the first day of the week. And with Jesus experiencing and saying this, we know just like with what he cried out with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And how he felt forsaken by God so that we can be forgiven by God. We see here as he cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That Jesus trusted here. He trusted in God's vindication and refuge by submitting his spirit into God's hands. His, again, spirit here that did not mean the Holy Spirit, but just submitting that to him, which is pretty remarkable if you think about it. Remember, this is Jesus, fully God, that just like what we read in Matthew 27, where 
so often the authority is mocking him and making fun of him and saying, if you're truly God, you should be able to take yourself off the cross. You can call the angels down right now, which he could. He could. But what does he do instead? He submits his spirit. They couldn't kill him. He allowed it. Fully God, having all the power and authority to stay alive. This is God. You can't kill God. Cute, cheesy Christian song to inspire the cheesy Christian movie. God is not dead. He's fully alive. It's true. You can't kill him. And Jesus endured that pain as they were mocking him to come off that cross. And at that moment, he could, but he willingly submitted his spirit, his human spirit. And in such submission to death, listen, church, he trusted in God's larger, greater gospel plan that his father will be vindicated, that he will be in safe refuge with him by submitting his spirit to what he says specifically, what he's quoting from the psalm, into God's hands. Which, again, there's a thing there, God's hands there. You'll, you'll see, I love it. There's a reason why he says God's hands. Going back to the psalm that he quoted, Psalm 31, 31 starting off with verse 3, another psalm written by David, who wrote a good chunk, a lot of the psalms. Psalm 31, starting off with verse 3, says this, For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Jesus trusted that God's plan will work. Just like David trusted all throughout that psalm. You'll lead me, you'll guide me. When nets and traps have been set out for me, you will be my refuge. You are faithful into your hand. I commit my spirit. And he knew that he and his father would be glorified as God will use his son's death in the consummation of the gospel. And he knew that us receiving salvation, sonship, sanctification, and eternity, that God would get the glory. And that those who would continue to reject and persecute will receive righteous judgment. Again, that God will be vindicated. And that is why he trusted God in such things in his death that he had to willingly submit. And he also knew, as David quoted the verse right before it, that there is refuge to come. It's what I love about the rest of this psalm that Jesus quoted. And I believe he had the surrounding verses in mind when going through such pain willingly. Remember right before he is talking about crying out, why have you forsaken me as he's feeling our sin upon himself? You, my God, will provide refuge as hard as this is. That God will provide shelter and protection for him. And listen, church. For us. 
when we are in Christ, he provides that same refuge for us. You see, sin doesn't just separate us from God, but of course it puts us in grave danger. From eternal hell to physical consequences on this earth, where in Christ we can certainly expect persecution and suffering, we know and trust that it is only temporary, happening with a heavenly father and spiritual brothers and sisters by our side. And still, that is nothing in comparison to the deceitful attacks and oppression from Satan and sin. And that is where, church, we should find great comfort and peace knowing that as Jesus is crying out here with this psalm in mind, God is a shelter and refuge. He is a shelter and refuge. He will protect and he will provide. About a month back when I went to a concert to see one of my favorite bands, whenever I go to a concert, I like to know all the songs and I paid attention to all the set lists that they had for this specific tour. And they played a song that day that they did not play on any one of their other tours. And it had me repeating this song over and over the last month, not knowing specifically this point was going to come out of this sermon and this Texan psalm. But I want to read some of the specific words and lyrics of this song that's entitled Safe Retreat. As it repeats actually many themes from Psalm 31. The song says, where have I been when it seems like I'm hiding under a rock? I seek, then I hide. I'm too weak to speak. In the stillness of prayer, there's no secrets. God always knows my longing, my yearning, my groaning, my burning, my scars, and my hurting. And it's no surprise to him. His watchful eye will see it. I'm only fooling myself when I conceal it. Apart from grace, I would never seek your sovereign face. Next to you, the only place to keep my heart chaste. Otherwise, I chase idols to my disgrace and I waste time trying to fix what I can only break. It's when I'm broken that I'm standing open-handed, reaching out to my Father, knowing you understand me. It's in your arms that I can safely rest. You're the God who gives life from death. I'll hide in your safe retreat. That when the storms, storm clouds fly till they pass me by, I will hide in your safe retreat. You see, like David, like Jesus, and through Jesus, it is God who is our true, safe retreat and refuge. That as David says here, you are my rock and my fortress. It is for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. He will do that will take out of the net that they have hidden for me. He will be our protector, our shelter. Into your hand I commit my spirit, for you've redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. See, Jesus knew that God was his safe retreat as he willingly gave his spirit of life to him. In fact, what he prayed when saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, what he quoted from Psalm 31, he said this because he knew, specifically with the reference to his hands, God's hands, that it is only in the Father's hands that our spirits are safe. In fact, if you remember John 10, 29, Jesus, when speaking 
for our assurance and salvation. He taught my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my, what's those words? Father's hands. And we know that part of that safe retreat is that eternal security we have in Jesus. You know, we're often in the habit of securing our most valuable earthly treasures in some type of safe or maybe at the bank or in this day and age, if you don't trust the bank right now, you probably have tons of cash hidden all around your house or an offshore account. I'm not going to judge. Somebody else, Bill. Where you think no harm will come from them. But from the cross, Jesus shows us that our most valuable of treasures, our spirits, should be committed for safekeeping in the most safe place, which is where his father's hands. The moment we're truly saved, we have counted the cost, we have repented of sin, we have had saving faith in Christ, we commit our spirits into the father's hands. We trust him for our salvation, and from then on, life is lived on a day-to-day commitment of our spirits in our Father's hands. That our spirits are committed in our service to Him, in our daily decisions, but also all of our joys and our sorrow and the mission that He has sent us out. And when we are out on that mission, sharing the gospel, being persecuted, we trust that we are in our Father's hands. And when the time of our death comes, we yet shall follow Jesus' example and say yet again, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit because I know you've already done that. As our kids learned last week on Sunday morning through the Gospel Project, they learned about the first Christian martyr, Stephen, who was stoned to death. That was a fun conversation for Sunday evening dinner, by the way, and I appreciate it. But many don't know that that Stephen prayed this exact prayer, Acts 7.59, and said, into my Father's hands I commit my spirit. In fact, many other Christians have found this great comfort in this psalm at the time of their death, repeating these same words that Jesus said on the cross. People in church history, such as recorded at least as Polycarp, Martin Luther, others, said, into your hands I commit my spirit as they embrace an eternal refuge with their heavenly Father. All because of what he did. And church, what we do today, remember in the cross. This morning, as we partake in the Lord's Supper, as we remember that this bread that is broken, that we eat, it represents Jesus' body being broken for us so that we can have and receive that safe retreat. That our sin puts us in grave danger. Everything from, again, consequences on earth to eternal hell that we don't at heart have to be anxious or worry about because we trust that we are in our Father's hands. We submit our lives and our spirit to follow Him for him and that this drink right here that it represents Jesus' blood the same blood that he shed 
so that we can be forgiven instead of forsaken. Church, a moment here. Again, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper. I'll remind you there's two tables up front and a table in the back. The table in the back has a gluten-free option if that's a, a, a necessity for you or a preference. In a moment here, after spending some time with the Lord on your own in confession and prayer, I'll ask you to move toward the tables through these middle aisles right here. And you can go back to your seat or if you want to pick out a spot in the sanctuary, whether it be you or you and some friends, community group or your family, and you can make an altar anywhere to go through the instructions of the Lord's Supper to partake in that, remembering and praying together. Again, you can do that at your seat or you can do that at a place in this room. I want to encourage you to do it. Again, as a family or if you feel led to with others, parents, as children will be coming or old children will be coming in, I want to encourage you to spiritually lead your kids in this time. Uh, that if they are professing believers and you feel good about it, again, a special thing, partake in them, explaining what we are to remember about the cross. And listen, parents, if your kids are not Christians, this is an amazing opportunity to share the gospel with them, to share what this means and what this represents. And you're partaking in it because of what Jesus gave us with this and that your prayer and hope is one day they will truly, truly receive this themselves to partake in it. Explain the gospel to them. Pray for their salvation. In a moment here again, kids will be in the back to be picked up. But before doing all that, again, at your seats as the band starts to play, I ask that you take some time to yourself to do what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, to examine yourselves in your heart. That as the Apostle Paul said, that if you are to partake in this without recognizing what he paid for, and you're not willing to confess and repent of that sin, you're making a mockery of what is represented here. It is better, in fact, for you to wait if you're not ready to repent, even as believers. And last of all, if you are not a Christian, I know this doesn't mean anything to you. I mean, you can take this, but why? It doesn't mean anything. Something that he gave as a gift to the church because of what it represents and what we are to remember in that way. But what I would ask for you, if you are not a professing believer, if there's not a moment in time that you know that you have received Christ as you've repented of your sin and given your life to him and trust him as your Lord and Savior because of what he accomplished for you on the cross out of his love, what he did in the resurrection, defeating sin, Satan, and death, giving you hope to have new life. That maybe during the message today, through his scripture, it actually does mean something in place of that separation and hurt because of your sin, God wants to save you and free you out of his grace. And if that is you here today, what I would plead is that you would give your life to him. Not just by confessing individual sins, but confessing your whole life, mindset and way has been one that needs, again, forgiveness in Christ. And if you believe that he makes that possible through what is represented here, 
not taking the body and blood, but what it represents. That blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sin. That body was broken for you to have new life in him. That he died for you, paid for those sins, rose from the dead. And that you will have saving faith and receive him as your savior. And if you do that while others are around you, can praying, confessing, remembering. But you are receiving him for the first time. You are saved, forgiven, and freed. And I would even encourage you to joyfully then partake in this as it now represents something much more, your life change and eternal security. Church, this is a reminder, much like the Lord's Supper that we're partaking in, a reminder of what Jesus did for us in his death and resurrection, that what we proclaim as we make current wrongs right because he did that for us once and for all on the cross, and we remember that. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. It's on the screens. Feel free to read it. As it's what Jesus had said for us to remember about what's represented here. And as you're remembering this, will you also remember that when he did this, when his body was broken, his blood was shed, and he felt forsaken by God, he did that so that you could be forgiven when you partake in this because of what he did for you and you received in Christ, you now have a safe refuge as you have submitted your life into his hands because of what he did on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord. It is sobering to know what your son went through and a sacrifice. It wasn't just the death. It wasn't just the pain. It was the literal soul-shaking feeling of being abandoned by his heavenly father that he had an eternal relationship with. God, as much as it hurts, and I've seen, felt, and ministered to, the abandonment and forsakenness that we have experienced on this earth. I don't know if it compares, it can't compare to what your son experienced. And he did that for us. He did it so that you would be glorified. He did it so that a church will be here to remember such things, to have received such things, and now can go out and be sent in such things. To trust continually we thank you Lord for the refuge you provide as your son willingly gave his life submitted his spirit as we give our lives to you in the same way you are a continual refuge let us remember this as we dwell and remember the cross today what we have been given, no matter how hard Satan attacks, no matter what sins we're still struggling with, you are a safe refuge. And God, if there's anybody in here that needs to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior for the first time, whether it's their first time in a church, whether they've grown up in that environment but never took that step, whether they did that under false pretenses, 
not understanding or knowing what they were doing. But here today, your spirit is moving and they are willing to give you their life, turn from their sins, follow you, submit to you and receive you as the Lord and Savior, trusting what you did on the cross was for them. What you accomplished in the resurrection really gives them hope and power to receive that new life. And they repent of their sin and have saving faith in you. And that you will be their safe refuge. Their forever protector. Freed and forgiven. God, let us dwell upon these things as we remember the cross this morning. We thank you. We pray this in your name, Jesus.